Two weeks ago, we started a new series on the Old Testament book of Esther. May or may not be a book that you are familiar with, but what makes Esther really unusual is that it is a book in which God is nowhere mentioned. Really, seriously. Not once is God spoken of anywhere in the book, and nowhere does God make a physical appearance. What also makes the book unusual and even frustrating is that the author of the book, whom we actually are unsure of uh, who it is because we're not told, the author provides us with basically no commentary on the events and actions that take place in this book. And so what's frustrating about that is that uh, specifically with characters and some of their actions, we're not told whether we are supposed to think whether that action is moral or immoral. We're not told about the motives behind why the characters do certain things that they do. And so we've been experiencing that already through the first two chapters, that it can be really frustrating because of this lack of commentary that is provided. But I've been saying this, and I'll continue to say it, I hope by the end of the book, you come to see that the fact that God is not named in this book is actually the genius of the book, that it's brilliant, and that it actually makes the story of Esther more relevant to us in our lives. Now, let's do a quick review of chapters one and two. In chapter one of the book of Esther, we are first introduced to the king, King Azosaurus. I've probably said his name five different ways, and I'll probably say it five different ways throughout the rest of the series. Um, if you're just joining us for this series, there's some really difficult names to pronounce throughout this book. We'll encounter more of those in this chapter, unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately for you, because... I've gotten the sense that you enjoy hearing me try to read these. But we're introduced to the king, the king of Persia, and he is a powerful man. He is a man with a lot of resources, and those who are in his inner circle, the officials around him, share to some degree in this power as well. And um, just quickly, you know, he throws a couple feasts, um, banquets in chapter one. And in the second of these feasts, his wife, Queen Vashti, is called for by him. He calls her um, to come out in public. Now, we don't know what his intentions are, but it seems like in some way he's wanting to make a public display of Vashti to show off her beauty to those who are in attendance, but she refuses. She says no. She doesn't do it. And so this creates chaos for the king and his officials. And so what they end up deciding to do, the advice is given to the king, is that what we should do is actually vanish Vashti, banish Vashti from the empire so that she learns a lesson. We make a, a public display of her, but then also we send a decree out throughout the empire, specifically telling wives that they must not disobey their husbands in this way. So we see this power being used um, in ways that aren't serving people well in chapter 1. In chapter 2, um, a few years have gone by, and a lot has happened. Um, the king is feeling probably insecure. He's feeling vulnerable because his attempted military campaign in Greece has failed. He was humiliated. 
And so here he finds himself in the beginning of chapter 2, and it seems like he's possibly feeling regret over the fact that they have sent Vashti away those years ago. Could be feeling lonely, wanting a wife, um, whatever it might be. And so his close advisors come to him again with some advice. They say, basically, I'm paraphrasing, let's hold a beauty contest. We'll go out throughout the empire and we will basically abduct beautiful women throughout the Persian empire, bring them into your palace, and throughout a series of um, tests and events, the one that you deem most beautiful, the one who pleases you the most, she gets to be your wife, she gets to be queen. Now, I encourage you to go back, read that chapter, listen to last week's sermon. It was really long. I think it was the longest sermon I've ever preached here, like 55 minutes or something. So I'll try not to do that again this morning, which means I should probably stop doing review and get into our passage for today. But I just want to give you context, especially if you haven't been with us. And so chapter two ends actually on the note of Esther becoming queen um, through that whole beauty contest, if you will. And then at the very end, um, Mordecai, her relative uh, who raised her, overhears this plot by some of the king's closest uh, uh, advisors to do harm against him. And so he makes Esther aware of this. It's investigated, found to be true. And so these two men who devised this plot are hanged. That's the end of chapter two. And so as we come to chapter three, we might expect that it would begin with some kind of acknowledgement of Mordecai, right? some kind of reward for Mordecai for foiling that plot against the king, but that is not the case. Look at verse 1. After these things, King Ahas... Here we go again. I wasn't struggling with this name, but King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So right here, the beginning of chapter 3, we are introduced to a new character. His name is Haman. And we learn that Haman received a promotion from the king. He was given a position which put him over all of the other king's officials in um, the empire. Now, this placement of the uh, promotion should stand out to us. It's placed where we, would someone mind getting me some water? These uh, almonds, lesson learned, do not eat almonds during the service. <clears throat> we learn that Haman received this promotion from the king. He's put high above all the other officials. And this placement, as I was saying, should stand out to us as weird because, as I said earlier, you would think our expectation would be, coming into chapter 3, that Mordecai would be the one here receiving some kind of recognition and reward for him foiling the plot against the king. That is not what we find here. Now, keep in mind, about five years probably have gone by in between chapter 2 and 3. So these events are not immediately following where we ended in chapter 2, but still, it is the case that nowhere are we told about any recognition or reward for Mordecai. And in fact, is someone getting me water? Because I'm not going to make it through the sermon. Okay. Thank you, Lily. Well, I have water coming from every side. 
Doug, good luck with the audio this week. Well, I might need both. I'll use this one after the sermon. This is awkward. I don't even remember what we were talking about. Oh, Mordecai. What we learn later on in the storyline is that Mordecai does get end up, he does end up being recognized by the king because the king realizes one night he wakes up from his sleep and realizes, oh, wait, Mordecai, we never recognized him. So Mordecai has not been acknowledged at this point. And so it's weird, right? And maybe even frustrating. Mordecai performs this heroic act, at least as far as potentially saving the life of the king, and yet we find this other guy at the beginning of chapter 3, Haman, being promoted. In Hebrew narrative, the characteristic described when a character is first introduced is really significant. It's really important. When Mordecai here in the beginning of this chapter is introduced, now we've already met him, but when he's introduced first in this chapter, he's simply identified as a Jew. And when Haman is introduced here for the first time, he is simply introduced as an Agagite. This is significant. Here's why. Agag was the king of the Amalekites at the time Saul was king of Israel. The Amalekites frequently raided Israel. In fact, they have the distinction of being the first people to attack God's newly formed nation, Israel, after the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. God promised Moses, in particular, that he would completely erase the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. God commanded Israel to war against them. So that gives you a little bit of of an idea of the background here and why the introduction of Mordecai and Haman here is so significant. There's a lot going on here. The original reader would have known the relationship between the Amalekites and Israel. And now what was being set up between Mordecai and Haman. It was a relationship that for them, they knew was going to be marked by conflict, aggression, as the relationship between Israel and the Amalekites was defined by war. Now, verses 2 through 4. All the king's servants at the king's gate would bow down to Haman whenever he would pass by, the form of honor. And we get the detail that the king actually required this. He commanded it. So it wasn't just that these servants were doing so on their own accord. They're doing so because the king commanded it. He told them that they must do it. But Mordecai refused. He refuses. Why? Well, this is another one of those places in Esther that can potentially be really frustrating for us because we don't know for sure. We're not told exactly why Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. In fact, Mordecai is repeatedly asked, you'll notice in the narrative, by the king's servants why he refuses, and yet we're told that he would not listen to them. He would not answer their question. Perhaps he resented Haman because of Haman's promotion. And Mordecai wasn't acknowledged, as we've talked about. 
It could be because Mordecai was a Jew, and Mordecai felt like bowing down in this way was an act of religious devotion. We don't know for sure. It's known from other sources outside of Scripture that in general, Jews did not bow down to pagan officials of the Persian court. And it wasn't because it was a religious act, but rather just one of protocol. So this suggests that Mordecai's refusal was not necessarily religiously motivated, although it could have been, we don't know for sure, but personal and specific to Haman. Haman, in this narrative, embodies the idolatry of power. Everything that we saw in the king in chapters 1 and 2 and his officials, all those things that called us to be disgusted, and to have dislike of the king, they're all embodied in the person of Haman. So the king's servants tell Haman about Mordecai's refusal. That brings us to verses 5 and 6. How does Haman respond to this? How does he react? We're told that he is filled with fury when he finds out that Mordecai refuses to bow or kneel in his presence. Now, this is interesting. It's fitting because Haman's name in Hebrew sounds something like the Hebrew word for wrath. Haman is a man driven by pride. He's a man who's filled with wrath and fury when he does not receive the acknowledgement that he believes he is due. He decides to not lay hands on Mordecai alone. Haman develops a bigger scheme. He has something bigger in mind. He wants to destroy all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. That escalated quickly. Verses 7 through 11. Haman casts lots, referred to as the pure, pure. Basically, the, 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 the pure that's referred to here refers to a cube-shaped object. And so you might say it's the equivalent of throwing dice. This is how they would make decisions. Now, realize here that um, there was divination going on here. They were looking for the gods to provide direction and guidance through the casting of these lots. Haman cast the lot in the first month that falls on the 12th month. So he has to wait for 11 months for his plot to be enacted. He goes to the king, because the king doesn't, isn't aware about, of any of this yet, and he goes to the king and tells him about these people in the Persian empire that are causing trouble, that represent a threat ultimately to the king and his power. Notice that he never refers to them as Jews. He never tells them who the people actually are. What Haman does is he appeals, and we're going to talk more about this, to the king's insecurity, but also to the king's need to replenish the treasury that had been depleted by that disastrous war against Greece. And so Haman has devised this plot in which when they destroy all of the people of Israel, they'll plunder all of their possessions and those will be distributed back into the treasury of the empire. So this is a win for the king, the double win. A people, 
still a people. We don't know who the people, the king doesn't know who the people are. A people who represent a threat to him will be stamped out and the treasury will be refilled. And so a decree is sent out on the eve of Passover. Um, This juxtaposition is quite amazing here because Passover is the time in which Israel would celebrate the fact that God had rescued them out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And now what is happening? A threat of genocide faces them. There is a threat of them being wiped from the face of the earth. The joy of the Passover is turned to sorrow for the people of Israel. Verses 12 through 15, the king's Scribes are summoned and an edict is written. Letters are sent throughout the entire empire. They say with instruction, the passage says, with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Finally, in verse 15, couriers went out by order of the king and the decree was issued. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the storyline, the plot of chapter 3 of Esther. The way that I want to get into the content of this storyline is to talk about the insecure self and the secure self. The insecure self and the secure self. Let's begin with the insecure self. And first, I want to take you back to chapter 1. In that chapter, one of the king's officials, his name was Mamukin, he has this incredible fear of losing respect. Now, this is after Vashti, the king's wife, the queen, has refused to come out into public at the banquet. And so what he is experiencing or feeling, this Mamukin, is that if we allow this to go unpunished, people throughout the empire, particularly women, let's not overlook that, particularly women throughout the empire may begin to disobey us. They may not respect us. Well, apparently it appears that they're already not respected. Vashti apparently didn't have all that much respect for her husband or for his officials, but Mumukin has this fear of losing respect. So this drives him to escalate that crisis in chapter 3. So what begins as this crisis between, to some degree, between two people, a husband and a wife, he says, if we don't do something like this, this is going to become a crisis empire-wide. So we must act, we must banish Vashti, and we must warn and threaten all of the women of the empire to not think about doing this kind of stuff. Here in chapter 3, we also have quite the escalation. What begins between this conflict, this tension between Mordecai and Haman is escalated also into an empire-wide conflict. Why? Because of Haman's incredible fear of losing respect. The insecurity of those in power is a theme throughout the book of Esther. We talked about this in the first week. One of the ironies of the book is that those who, are, who, who seem to have all the power actually are powerless. Those who seem to be, we, we might deem as most secure, are those who are actually most insecure. 
And it drives somebody like Haman, who has been given this position of power, and in the eyes of those around him, seems like, oh, he would be somebody who's very secure. It turns out that his insecurity is actually going to be his downfall. Haman becomes absolutely obsessed with Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. Haman had an irrational, I think that's the best word to use, he had an irrational need for honor and respect. And when those in power, when their irrational need for power is coupled with, their irrational need for respect, I should say, is coupled with absolute power, it leads always to oppression and injustice. And that is what is unfolding here in the book of Esther. Insecurity leads to all kinds of injustices. Injustice is ultimately rooted in insecurity. It doesn't matter what um, we may name as the example, racism, murder, whatever it might be, its root is ultimately insecurity. That we must project ourselves to be better than the other. That those people out there, over there, are a threat to our security and our power, so we must act and do away with them. We must diminish whatever power they may have. Humanity's grasp for power is toxic. And what we see here in chapter 3 is a clear example of it. Haman, consumed by power and pride. And it's not just those who are in power, with absolute power, those that we might say have more power than us, that struggle with insecurity. Each and every one of us has the struggle with insecurity. And insecurity causes us to do all kinds of things, doesn't it? Causes us to maybe act out towards someone else. It causes us maybe to have self-hatred. It causes us to do all kinds of things and to think all kinds of thoughts. Again, take Haman, for example. His pride drives him to a point in which his pride can never, ever be satisfied. Think about this. Probably thousands of people would kneel before Haman. They would bow down to him. But there's one man who doesn't, and Haman can't stand it. Haman overlooks the fact that thousands kneel before him, but there's this one, this one, this one must do so also. He will not stand for a loss of respect. Rabbis throughout history have described the hunger for power like having a pet crocodile. You feed it, but it's never satisfied. You could say the same is true of our insecurity. We constantly feed our insecurity. We're constantly giving to it, giving to it, giving to it, and yet we're never actually made to be secure. We're never satisfied. Richard Lovelace wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal. And in his book, he writes this, Those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. 
And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. The culture is put on as if it were armor against self-doubt. That's what's happening here with Haman, and it's what happens to each and every one of us. Our insecurity begins to come to the surface. It begins to emerge, and self-doubt takes over. And as we talked about at the confession of sin, we, we don't remain neutral when we're confronted or made aware of our insecurity. We don't do nothing. That um, identification and awareness of insecurity is so powerful, it's so haunting to us that we must do something to respond to it. And so you're scrolling through Facebook or social media, and you come across somebody who has something that you want, but you don't have. Self-doubt emerges. Insecurity rears its ugly head. And so what might you do? Well, yeah, but they have this going on in their lives. Um, They might have this, but they don't have what I have. And this could, you know, go on for 30 seconds. It could go on for three hours. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You do. You know what I'm talking about. And because so often we are unreflective in life, we are not even aware most of the time that our insecurity is actually driving us as much as it is. What about when you don't receive the praise and recognition that you believe you deserve? Or when you're just simply hyper-aware of your shortcomings and your failures, what do you do when you're confronted with that? What are your... um, we, we could say, remedies that you fall back on. A couple weeks ago, I was in a meeting with some leaders, and um, there was a criticism made, and the criticism actually wasn't even of me personally. But for whatever reason, I say for whatever reason, as far as the moment went, I found myself becoming really defensive. And the other leaders sensed that as well. And my defensiveness began to drive all of my responses to the conversation that was taking place to the point that it actually, like, looking back, it doesn't even make sense. It was irrational. And by God's grace, a little bit in the moment, and then after the moment, I was able to realize something was off and going on, and the Holy Spirit was able to bring this to my attention, and then, then I was able to talk about it with some of the leaders and since then. But as I reflect on it more, I identify the source as insecurity. And here's how irrational it was. It was a criticism, like I said, not made against me, but for whatever reason in the moment, I began to react toward it with, with a thought of, Somehow, in some way, this criticism could find its way to me, and I could be the one responsible for this, 
And so therefore, I'm being really defensive, even though that wasn't even a possibility. But you know how this works. You know how it unfolds. Insecurity drives us more than we even realize. So what do you do with your insecurity? What do you do with it? Generally speaking, insecurity breeds insecurity. What I mean by that is we latch on to things to try to make us feel more secure. And sometimes those things work. Sometimes they work for longer than other things. But ultimately, there comes a point where they stop satisfying the need. They stop meeting the deep insecurity in our lives. And so that breeds more insecurity because we become insecure about the fact that these things that we thought we had figured it out with haven't figured it out, and so we're left more empty than we were in the first place. We're left longing for more. Let's talk about the secure self. How do we become less insecure? How do we move toward deeper personal security in life? Well, the Christian faith provides us with an incomparable resource in the gospel. And by the gospel, I mean the good news of Jesus Christ. It is an incomparable resource for us. Because I'll say this, the insecure self is the self that is separated from God's unconditional love. If you want to identify what is the insecure self, like how would I characterize it? How would I describe it? How would I explain it? It's the self that is separated from God's unconditional love. Love is the issue here. Now, that might surprise you. It surprises me. I've um, talked about this in another context before, but I I would say ever since my sabbatical, which was coming up on two years ago, during that sabbatical, reading a lot of, of Scripture and spending a lot of time in prayer, I became struck by the theme of love in Scripture and how the measure of true spirituality is love of God and love of neighbor. The Christian faith is ultimately about love because God in himself, the triune God, three persons in one, Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells for eternity in love. And it's the fact that we have been separated isolated from this love that we were made for. Because here's what the biblical story tells us going back to creation. We were made for love. We were made to be swallowed up into the love of the Trinity, to experience the deep love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us. A love that is unconditional. A love that enters into the inner recesses of our hearts, every fabric of our lives, and changes us and transforms us and makes us feel safe and secure. But we've been separated from that because of our rebellion against God. And here is how we can define our rebellion against God. Our rebellion against God 
is becoming unsure of God's love for us, so we go looking for it everywhere else. That is the essence of sin, that we doubt God's love for us, and so we go looking for love in all of the wrong places, those places that ultimately can't provide us with the love that deep down inside we want. And so maybe this surprises you. Maybe it surprises you because you don't think of yourself as a person of emotion. You're more of an intellectual person, and even your approach to the faith tends to be through more of an intellectual grid. I, I, I'm, that's true of me to some degree as well, and maybe that's why this is so surprising to me. But the insecure self is the self that is separated from God's love, is unconditional love. We were made for love. And in response to our rebellion against God, in response to our running away from the love of God and our loving other things above God and our trying to find love, our, our love from others in other places besides God, God has responded in the person of Jesus by moving toward us. Now, this is so critical to embrace beyond an intellectual level. Because what we're saying here is that God, who made you, whose love you are made to experience for all eternity, it is him, his love, that you ran away from and that maybe you still are running away from. And your experience in life with people, for the most part, is that when you do that to them, they move away from you. They don't come toward you, generally speaking. But the heart of the Christian faith, the gospel, is the good news, the astonishing news, that God actually moves toward us. He comes to us with a deep, forgiving, unconditional love. It's an experiential love. It's not just something that you're meant to give intellectual assent to. It's something that you are meant to enter into, to enter into the Trinity's love for you, the love that you were made for. Because here is what is true of us when we come to embrace God's love to us shown in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus' work on our behalf, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf that makes us secure. Scripture tells us that in light of that, our identity is ultimately firm and secure. We're justified, Scripture tells us. And what that means is that we are declared to be okay. And deep down inside, that is what we all want. We want for there to be somebody who can look at the whole of our lives, all of the brokenness in its depth, and be able to say, I still love you, and you are okay. You're safe. You're secure. You're welcomed. Scripture tells us that we've been justified, that we've been declared to be right, we've been declared to be okay because of Jesus and his work for us. We're told that we belong, that we're not on the outside, that we're actually on the inside. In other words, everything that we dream of, everything that our longings, our yearnings in life point us to is actually this. 
It's what is embodied in the good news of the gospel. That through nothing that we have done, nothing that we deserve, we have access to God's unconditional love that makes us secure. And here's what happens. As we begin to experience this love more, taste of this love more, it empowers us to love others more. Because we're now freed up to love other people. We don't have to use them. Go back to Haman. What is Haman doing? Haman is using people. The king is using people. Because we didn't really talk much about the king's insecurity in this chapter. But just consider that for a moment. The king, again, here in chapter 3, is incredibly insecure himself. It's his anxiety that drives um, this whole situation. Because Haman goes to him, and the king never asks, what people are we talking about? And the irony here is what? Is that the people that are being talked about, Mordecai is from those people, the one who saved the king's life. And guess what else? The king's very wife, the queen, comes from those people. And so the king sign off, signs off on this plan to kill all of those people, not even knowing what he's doing in detail. But it's his anxiety that drives him because Amon has made him aware that there are these people who ultimately represent a threat to you. And the king in his insecurity and anxiety knows that he can't have that because he must protect and maintain his power. So it's basically, Haman, whatever you say sounds like a grand plan. He's driven by anxiety that is rooted in insecurity. The king, Haman, so many people in power don't love other people. They use them. They manipulate them in order to feed their insecurity. We don't have to be like that. In whatever power God gives us in our spheres of life, we don't have to be like that. We don't have to be a person who uses other people in order to try to construct an identity, in order to try to make ourselves feel secure. We don't have to do that. Why? Because we rest in the unconditional love of God. We already know that we're safe and secure. And so we actually can relate to people out of love, no desire to manipulate them or use them. We love them for who they are, not what we can get from them. This is an experiential love that changes us, empowers the way that we love other people. Zach Eswine is a pastor in St. Louis. He's one of my seminary professors. And he writes this, How can we find a stamina for being overlooked in the world? I, I, I find that question just so poignant. How can we find a stamina for being overlooked in the world? I'm going to read the rest of the quote in a moment. But when you leave here this morning, it's most likely going to be the case that in some way you are going to be overlooked. Overlooked by maybe the person that you believe loves you the most. Tomorrow, when you go to school or you go to work, it's probably going to be the case that in some way you are going to be overlooked. How can we find a stamina, an energy, a resource for being overlooked like that in the world? He goes on, how can we find a stamina for being overlooked in the world unless quiet also describes a Sabbath of the heart? 
Arresting of the heart is what he means. Moment by moment with God. We don't fear the loss of worldly attention only because we enjoy company with true treasure. His attention is enough. How can we find stamina for being overlooked in the world? Because when we're overlooked in the world, insecurity sets in. Where do we go? Where do we turn? By resting at a very deep level, moment by moment, with God and His unconditional love for us. We can afford to lose the loss of worldly attention because we enjoy company with true treasure. Let me end with this. That's not easy. It actually takes work on our behalf. Grace is free. Salvation is free. Entering into relationship is free through faith in what Jesus has done. But to cultivate that faith, to cultivate a deeper experience of God's love, that takes responsibility on our part. Yes, the Holy Spirit is at work, and the Holy Spirit ultimately must do it, but it takes responsibility on our part to also come near. And the reason that, insecure, the reason that I believe that insecurity has such a stranglehold on our lives is because we do not create space in our lives to just simply be present with God. You see, you can't overcome your insecurity by just breezing through life, rushing through life. Because if that is your approach, your insecurity is going to breed more insecurity and it's going to be suffocating and it's going to be overwhelming. In order to overcome our insecurity, we must, we have to figure out how, by God's grace, to create space in our lives to slow down, to be quiet, and to be present before God, to speak to Him the deep insecurities of our hearts, and to rest and receive His unconditional love for us in Jesus. His attention really is enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humans are such an enigma. We are those who have been created in your image to represent your glory, to experience your deep, unconditional love for us, And yet we also are those who have resisted it, who have run away from it, who have rebelled against it. I pray that you would draw us, Holy Spirit, into the deep love of Jesus, his unconditional love for us. I pray for those who are here this morning that have not taken the step of faith, who would not identify themselves with the Christian faith, I pray that you would show them Jesus, that you would open their minds and hearts to the beauty of the gospel and how the gospel is what ultimately makes us secure. And I pray for those of us who know you already, that you would shower us with your love, that you would give us the discipline to create space in our lives, to slow down, 
to reflect, to be made aware of our insecurities so that we might speak them to you and have you speak to them in your love. You are able, Lord Jesus, to do this. You're able to change us into a people who don't have to use and manipulate others, but who actually are able to love others. So that's our prayer. May we love you, may we love our neighbor as we rest in and receive your love for us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.